welcome back to another Curbside Consult from the NEJM Resident 360 podcast. I'm Mike Mee, a hospitalist and editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Hibbert, who is an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital, and the site director for the Harvard Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. She's also the MGH site PI for the NHLBI Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury Clinical Trials Network, PedalNet for short, which is the spiritual successor to the famous ARDSNET. So, we're two episodes into the series and already having to change up the format. This time, we're bringing you a discussion that's motivated by four clinical trials published in the March 1st, 2018 issue of the NEJM. The first pair, SMART and SALT-ED, addresses the question of which crystalloid solution is better, normal saline or balanced solutions like lactated ringer. Given that over 200 million liters of saline is given in the U.S. each year alone, it's surprising to me that we don't have a definite answer yet. The second pair of articles, Adrenal and Approaches, revisit the question of whether corticosteroids benefit patients with septic shock a yet unresolved issue in critical care, despite a long history of prior research. Because of how relevant these issues are for residents, we're taking this opportunity to give you some background information on these new articles and taking a deep dive on them so you can sound smart on rounds. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the NEJM. Thank you for joining us for a special discussion on fluids and sepsis. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's rare that we get a a single issue where we have four papers that are pretty relevant to resident practice in the hospital. First, we're going to start talking about fluids, which we have had two papers now. One, looking at a very pretty important question of lactated ringer, normal saline, two commonly given fluids, which is better, which is worse. We'll definitely delve into that a little bit. And then there's this persistent question that we always like to talk about on ICU rounds, which is, do you give steroids for septic shock? And if so, when? Some people might ask, why are we publishing yet again (laughs) more papers on steroids and septic shock? I think those are valid questions, but we'll dig into why that might be important. Sounds great. Okay, so let's start with fluids. You know, a simple way of thinking about the human body, in my mind, is we're just bags of water that are held <laughs> together by lipid membranes. So fluids are important, and it's probably one of the most commonly ordered medications that we give in the hospital. In medical school, we learn some basic principles about the importance of fluids, especially in hypovolemia. You need enough intravascular volume to maintain preloads and consequently cardiac output. Um, The fluids that we should be giving ideally should have the same tonicity as blood so that we don't cause lysis when we do deliver the fluid. We learn about the different compartments of fluid spaces. About 60% of fluids are intracellular, about 40% is extracellular, and of the extracellular component, about a third is intravascular and two-thirds is extravascular. But when we give fluids for hypovolemia, the really component that we care about is that intravascular volume. So in theory, you know, the ideal fluid that we should be giving people is something that improves cardiac output, helps oxygen carrying capacity, and stays intravascular. Why don't we start by just talking a little bit about what kind of fluids are out there and what kind of fluids 
are like this ideal fluid, <laughs> and why are they not more widely used? Yeah, great question, and I I agree. I think this is something that, as a resident, you're faced with every day, and you're usually subject to the whims of your attendings, which fluid they prefer or not. So I think these papers are very timely. You know, we generally divide fluids into two big groups: crystalloids and colloids. And you know, the colloids are fluids that have insoluble molecules in them. So whole blood would be a colloid, albumin is a colloid, and then there's been a number of synthetic colloid solutions like starch and gelatin. And the thought behind those is that they will do a better job of staying intravascular because they'll exert some oncotic influence on fluid shifts. The insoluble molecules won't easily cross the capillary tissue membrane, and they'll stay intravascular and really optimize all of those physiologic parameters that you've talked about. And that's as compared to crystalloid, which is the subject of the two studies we'll be discussing today. And crystalloid is where you have soluble molecules; they're just salt solutions. And as you said, we have a variety of options. None of them are exactly physiologic, but they're sort of what we're stuck with. And there's been a lot of discussion. Prior to these papers, about what is preferable, colloid or crystalloid,、uh, these papers that have come out have shifted the focus on crystalloid, and part of that is because we haven't seen a lot of evidence that colloid is the superior fluid.、Mm-hmm. On the topic of colloid versus crystalloid, then what does the literature tell us? You know, I actually don't see very many people get albumin, which is probably the most commonly used colloid. Except in the setting of a patient with bad cirrhosis coming in, and in those cases, we do have some data showing that albumin is helpful. Yeah, it's interesting. Although they're supposed to be better fluids, we have a lot of data that suggests that they're not. So there was the Safe trial, which took about seven thousand patients and randomized them to either get colloid and albumin solution, or to get crystalloid. And the thought was that the colloid group would have better outcomes. But in all of their outcomes, including their primary outcome, which was death. Their secondary outcomes, which include things like length of stay and organ failures, they found no benefit to getting albumin versus crystalloid. So that was a big study of critically ill patients that really showed no benefit to the albumin. There was a suggestion in the subset of patients with severe sepsis that they might benefit from having the albumin, and so a subsequent trial was done that focused in the albios trial that focused in on patients who had severe sepsis. To try to see whether that particular group would benefit, but unfortunately, again, despite pretty good randomization and not a lot of crossover, the group that got albumin plus crystalloid versus crystalloid again did not benefit from receiving the albumin.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, it seems like colloid did not really uniquely benefit patients. And you might ask, well, does it really matter which one you give? And the truth is, there's a huge cost difference between colloid and crystalloid, especially here in the U.S. So albumin is very expensive, and I think in the absence of any true benefit that was seen in these trials, there's been a real shift toward crystalloid, except in the case of someone, for example, with severe cirrhosis or getting an albumin challenge for hepatorenal syndrome. One thing that I thought was very interesting out of these trials, looking at colloid versus crystalloid, is that when you give normal saline, the classic teaching is only a third of it stays intravascular, and if you give something with Similar oncotic pressure as、uh, plasma, it would stay purely intravascular. And some of the trials seem to show that when you give the volumes of crystalloid, the ratio tends to be more of a one to one and a half than one to three 
in terms of the amount that you end up giving, suggesting maybe not all of it stays intravascular, what might account for that difference? Yeah, I think those one to three or one to four ratios that you often hear, you only have to give one volume of albumin for every three volumes of saline you would have to give, really um, are predicated on the idea that you have a healthy vascular endothelium that's not leaky, and so those large molecules will necessarily stay intravascular. And I think when you deal with patients who are in inflamed septic shock trauma state, they no longer have that healthy barrier. They no longer have a healthy vascular endothelium, and they're much more likely to leak even a large molecule like albumin into the extravascular space. Um, I also think that whenever you do trials in healthy volunteers, they rarely translate to our critically ill patients. Yeah. You know, oftentimes in practice, physiology is a little more complex. Yeah, it's much messier. It's very rarely predictable. I mean, this is, and we'll talk about this probably throughout the podcast, but this is why critical care trials are so often surprising or disappointing is that things we really think should work don't. And sometimes we get conflicting data. And I think part of it is that real life physiology is much messier than either calculated ratios or trials in, in healthy volunteers of volume expansion. So colloids, expensive doesn't really show a huge benefit in the trials that we have so far. So now we're on to crystalloids. And I'll just say before we go on, I think the one exception is in someone with hemorrhagic shock, you really should replace whole blood with, with blood. So yes. that is the one group of yes, patients, absolutely. critically ill patients, where I think colloid is unequivocally indicated. And in that case, it's packed red blood cells, FFP, platelets, all of that. So I'll just throw that in there you know, before my trauma colleagues get mad at me. Yes, my apologies for forgetting <laughs> that part as well. And I'll point our listeners to an excellent uh, review articles that we just published on hemorrhagic shock, which also explains that downsides to giving too much crystalloid in resuscitating those patients as you can create more dilutional coagulopathies the saline normally is at room temperature, so maybe inducing a little bit of hypothermia um, and coagulopathy from that as well. So when you need blood, give blood. That's right. <laughs> Everyone else, probably crystalloids. Okay, so crystalloids. There's market as we already mentioned, and the first one that was ever created over 100 years ago was normal saline, which is ironic because it's anything but normal. <laughs> it's 0.9% by volume sodium chloride in sterile water, and that was derived from studies of red cell lysis. But as we found out now, the concentration of normal saline at 154 milliequivalents of salt is far higher than normal plasma. Consequently, people developed balanced or quote-unquote physiologic solutions such as lactated ringers and plasma light. They are a little bit better, but again, not exactly physiologic. LR has 130 milliequivalents of sodium, 4 milliequivalents of potassium, a little bit of calcium, and lactate to balance out the fact that you can't really just put bicarb into solution. What are some of the differences between these solutions uh, when we give them in practice? And historically, what have we seen that may have persuaded some doctors to like one over another? I know in med school, the pedagogy or the stereotype is that surgeons like LR, medicine doctors like saline. I think that's very accurate. And in the OR, they like plasmalite. You know, I think that 
which is another balanced um, salt solution. Yeah, I think that has traditionally been the divide. As you said, normal saline is hypernatremic. It's also very hyperchloremic. And so probably as a resident, the thing you've seen the most is that when you give a lot of normal saline, you end up with a hyperchloremic non-GAP metabolic acidosis. And often that's just something you talk about on rounds, like, oh, where's their metabolic acidosis from? Well, how much fluids did you give them? But I think increasingly there's been concern that that can lead to a renal vasoconstriction and a decrease in glomerular filtration rate and maybe an increase in, in adverse kidney events. There's also concerns that normal saline in large volumes can actually be pro-inflammatory, that the acidosis can result in some vasoplegia, so maybe prolong hypotension despite getting fluids. Um, and what these papers we're going to talk about today really focus in on is the renal adverse events that have been a concern. Mm-hmm. Lactated ringers, on the other hand, is not a benign fluid. If you have someone who's already hyperkalemic and has trouble handling their potassium, you might be worried about giving the, that exogenous potassium. And I think in any patients who have any element of either traumatic or other brain injury where you're worried about giving a hypotonic solution uh, that may promote shifts of volume into the extravascular space and worsening uh, intracranial pressure, that would be another situation where you might be worried about lactated ringers. So Mm. significant concerns about normal saline and and some preliminary studies that suggest it might be harmful, but important caveat that lactated ringers is not physiologic either. And as you said, we don't really have a great physiologic solution. Yeah. And so we're going to dig into these studies and the focus is going to be on the kidney effects of fluids. And I think it's tough that you know the patients that are more prone to having kidney adverse events are the patients with a little bit of chronic kidney disease, but they also tend to be the one that have trouble handling potassium. So right. it's really, you can't find a, a go-to fluid always. Right. You have someone who comes in and acute kidney injury and their K is 5.6 and they're not making a lot of urine yet. And before you know whether they can make urine or respond to Lasix for their hyperkalemia, you have to upfront pick a fluid for them. And that fluid will either contain potassium or it won't. And I think part of why medicine doctors have sort of leaned toward normal saline is we see a lot more patients with chronic kidney disease. We see a lot more patients with acute kidney injury. We don't see as many people who are otherwise healthy but coming out of the OR or otherwise healthy but in a car accident or had some traumatic event. Um, And so I think that is a little bit to justify our past decisions, a little bit why medicine doctors have uh, leaned toward normal saline as our fluid of choice. I think that makes sense. And I think any times when practice differs, it's probably due to the type of patients that are in front of uh, Often, the doctors. Yeah. Let's dig into a little bit these two trials in this week's NEJM. So we have two studies coming out of Vanderbilt, uh, one in their ED population that subsequently got hospitalized, the SALT ED study, and then another study looking at patients that subsequently got admitted to the ICU, more of a critical care population, and randomizing them to balanced crystalloids versus normal saline. And in the majority of the patients, it was lactated ringer that was the balanced solution. So what were your take-home points from the study? What did it show? And does it sway you one way or the other as a critical care physician, which one you want to reach for? Yeah, it's interesting. So two of the studies that had come out before this study, one was a matched cohort study and one was just an observational study of critically ill patients had suggested that with normal saline, there was perhaps an increased incidence of acute kidney injury or, or prolonged increase in creatinine and renal replacement therapy. So I think this has sort of been circulating in our minds, but many of us, myself included, thought we might never get a good answer to the question, partly because it's hard to enroll a lot of patients and the event rate is relatively low. So getting enough patients to see a difference would be hard. But this group has done a great job um, 
figuring a way around that. So we can talk about the trial and critically ill patients first. And they did a very pragmatic cluster randomized design where everyone who was admitted for a certain time period got one type of fluids, and then everyone admitted in the next time period got another, and they did multiple crossovers between the treatments. So very pragmatic, and they managed to enroll over 15,000 patients, which in critical care is pretty rare. We're not that's cardiology. Impressive. Yeah, we're yeah. never going to have the numbers cardiology has, so that's pretty good. And they looked as their primary outcome, they looked at a composite endpoint, which is major adverse kidney events at 30 days. And that included mortality, so it included death, but also prolonged renal failure, so an increase in creatinine more than 200%, and incidence of new renal replacement therapy. So not your end-stage renal disease patients already on dialysis, but patients who needed new renal replacement therapy during this hospitalization. And they looked at critically ill patients who were admitted to their ICUs. And they found a statistically significant difference. So in the group that got the balanced fluids, mainly LR, as you mentioned, this composite outcome, they had a 14.3% incidence, and then the patients who got normal saline, they had a 15.4% incidence. So definitely a higher incidence of this adverse composite outcome in the patients who got normal saline. They did, sort of going back to the caveat before, they did give physicians an opportunity to opt out of the trial if their patients had hyperkalemia or traumatic brain injury. So those two groups of patients probably aren't adequately represented in this study. But statistically significant, low event rate, but a big number of patients, which is the way that you can find find a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, two ways to make your trial positive. Make That's it, right. Make it really big or sometimes make your control group do not as well. Right, exactly, exactly. Or combine a lot of low event rate outcomes into a composite outcome. And that's why composite outcomes get a bad bad rep, right? Yeah. If you can't find a mortality difference, add a couple more things in there and see whether you can find a difference between your groups. Yeah. I will say that I think that it's a very well-run study. They had very low crossover between the groups. They had great adherence to their treatment arms. So I think it did really test what they wanted it to test. And there were some subgroups who seemed to have more benefit than others. For example, in patients with sepsis, they actually saw a statistically significant mortality difference between the groups, which was surprising to me as someone who sees a lot of septic patients. Yeah. That was definitely surprising to me. Yeah. One thing that I thought was notable is in uh, in this study, the SMART study, the median volume of fluid given was only about a liter. Usually, I don't see hyperchloremic acidosis developed after I've given at least two, three, four liters of yeah. fluid. So uh, to me, it may make it, it kind of makes sense that in patients who have sepsis, septic shock, or other reasons for which they need to get a lot of fluids in a short period of time, and the kidneys can't really handle that, maybe the LR is a little gentler. Absolutely. If you think about the exposure or the dose of fluids that the groups received, in general, it wasn't that much. And maybe that's why we saw the separation in the sepsis group, is they just overall had a bigger exposure to both treatments. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when you look at even the, the all-comers sort of low event rate, you know, 14 versus 15 percent, that doesn't seem like a lot. But when you think about the number of patients who are brought into the ICU in our country every year, that's millions of patients, mm -hmm. right? So the number needed to treat is high. It's you know, 100-ish. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think about millions of patients coming into the ICU, maybe it starts to be meaningful, especially yeah. when it's a low-cost decision, right? You're not yeah. choosing between an expensive colloid and a crystalloid. You're just choosing between different types of crystalloids. So I think it'll be very interesting how this is implemented. I found it a little more convincing than I thought I was going to, to be honest. Well, that's uh, that's great. I, I am somewhat convinced as well, just because you know, I have to look up exactly how much LR costs versus saline, but I've been told it's not that different. It's and, pretty negligible. And when th that's negligible, even though, again, the odds ratio is only 0.9 and the confidence intervals, 
borders yep. on one, but still, for that negligible difference with not a lot of downsides. On the other hand, exactly. I think I'm probably more likely to reach for the LR again with with the caveat of. You know, in certain populations, they weren't really included in this in this study. Yeah, and I think you know when you look at the patient in front of you, you're the resident on call or either the attending on rounds in the morning. The chance that that patient in front of you is individually going to benefit is low, right? That's why the number did, needed to treat is so high. But why not? I mean, that's the question that I think we have to ask ourselves yeah. now. Every time we order normal saline instead of LR is why not? Like, why aren't we ordering the LR if there's a chance that they could benefit and if overall patients are benefiting? So it's hard for me to imagine getting a better trial than this to answer this question because the event rate is so low that you need to enroll thousands of patients. So I think this is the best trial designed to answer this, and I'm fairly convinced. Yeah. I would just say for our listeners, um, I don't think either of us own stock in Baxter. Definitely so. not. <laughs> so, uh, and no one paid us to say that. No, and and I I will be the first to say we have a, a wonderful fellow who works with us who came from surgery, and he has always been an LR component, and I have always mocked him mercilessly for it, and I think I'm going to have to eat my words. So, <laughs> All right, so let's just touch upon briefly the companion study, the SALT-ED study, which was, again, same hospital they looked at patients who were seen in ED, subsequently then hospitalized, but not in the ICU, and they had a little bit of a different primary outcome. Yeah, so again, this is a very similar design, so a cluster randomized trial. They got over 13,000 patients who came through the ED and then were hospitalized, but as you said, not critically ill. And they chose as their primary outcome hospital-free days, and they did not see any difference between the two groups in hospital-free days. So both groups had a, you know, an average of about 25 days in hospital. But as a secondary outcome, they used the same composite endpoint that the SMART study did, so major adverse kidney events at 30 days or MAKE 30, Um, and they did see a statistically significant difference between the two groups with that. So they saw a lower incidence in adverse outcomes in the LR plasma light group at about 4.5% and a higher incidence in the normal saline group at about 5.5%, and that was statistically significant. Again, really low event rates, so Mm -hmm. all the more important that they were able to enroll this huge number of patients. Um, and they did identify some subgroups who might actually benefit more from being uh, from receiving the LR or plasma compared to the normal saline, and specifically patients with acute kidney injury they saw um, as having the greatest benefit, mm-hmm. which sort of makes sense if you think about what we think might be the physiologic harm of normal saline. If you have a patient who comes in who already has kidney injury, further renal vasoconstriction and decreased perfusion could be particularly harmful in that group. So I'm not surprised that subgroup fell out. I'm honestly surprised they found any difference between the groups because, again, the fluid dose was low, and these aren't critically ill patients. So I was surprised. Yeah. So, again, the median volume of fluid given was only a liter. I think, for me, the take-home point really is that we should think about giving LR when we may be giving liters upon liters of fluid. But if you're only just going to give one liter of fluid, then may not end up being a huge difference. Yeah, and it's interesting. You wonder whether the patients with acute kidney injury, and I can't remember this in the paper, I'll have to go back and look, whether those patients received more fluid or whether they were just at unique risk from the fluid they got. Mm -hmm. Because you can imagine those might also be the patients who come in dry and get a couple more liters than your average hospitalized patient. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So that is the two trials. Let's just touch briefly upon this idea of how much fluid to give. You know, uh, it's a little bit outside the scope of this conversation for us to get into the nitty gritties of early goal-directed therapy and, you know, in sepsis, there's a there's been a long-storied literature on fluids and how much to give. But patients who are in the hospital 
Fluid's often given so reflexively that anytime you get a page overnight for low urine output or patient's a little tachycardic or the patient's NPO, would you like to give some fluids? You just go in and you type the order. And I think it was really enlightening to me that when an attending told me a very simple fact, which I never even paused to think about, 0.9% saline has 9 grams of sodium chloride, which is about 3.5 grams of sodium. And the daily recommended intake for a person is only 2 grams of salt. You put a patient on 100 cc's an hour of normal saline for an entire day, and that is 8 grams of salt and 2.5 kilograms of weight in just one day. I just think about the patients who come in with pancreatitis, and some people really need the fluid, but others where we reflexively put them on 200 cc's of LR even. Sometimes it gets busy, and if we're not going back and checking that, oh, their physiological parameters have already gotten better, their laboratory values have already gotten better, but they're still on that much fluid continuously that by the end of the day, they're up 14.4 grams of salt I just am curious to hear from you from as an intensivist, your thoughts on giving fluids, uh, when to give it, how much to give. Yeah, look, I think it's a really tricky question. As a critical care doctor, I could probably do a whole separate podcast on how much fluid to give and when to what patients. But I think even in the critical care setting, we've seen some dangerous signals about giving too much fluid. And I think, you know, throughout my training and, and sort of how I was quote unquote raised in medicine, you gave a lot of thought about what medications to use, but you just gave fluid whenever just to see whether it would help. And I think these studies, if nothing else, emphasize that fluid is a medication, that it might have benefit and harm um, in any given patient, that different fluids might have different benefits and harms. And I think really considering fluid as a medication is important. And in critical care, we've seen the signal over and over again that a more positive total body balance is associated with a worse outcome, even when you try to adjust for all of the things that might have led to a patient being more positive. So I think we've seen signs that a lot of extra fluid may be bad. I think limiting fluid to patients who are really going to benefit from it physiologically. Um, and in the ICU, we talk all the time about how to identify patients who are fluid responsive. And um, spoiler alert, I think there's going to be a couple studies coming out, hopefully in the next couple of years, that even in patients who are fluid responsive, should we give fluids or should we give pressors? And there's some studies that are already underway abroad. And um, the pedal net, which is the new ARDS net, will be launching a new study this winter to look at that same question, fluids versus pressors. So mm-hmm. um, stay tuned for that. I don't know what the answer will be for any of those studies, but I think for a long time we've considered fluids to be a benign thing that we can just give a trial of fluids, whether you're a little dry or a little hypotensive or mm-hmm. your creatinine's up a little bit. I think more and more we need to see fluid as a medication that will harm some patients and benefits from some patients. And identifying the patients who will benefit and then being judicious and thoughtful about what we give and how much we give is probably where we need to move. I totally agree. So let's move on to our next topic, steroids and sepsis. Again, it's a question that (laughs) residents get pimped on a lot in the ICU, and we do talk about it a lot. It's a great pimping question because there's no right answer, so that's perfect. I love it. (laughs) It's so mean. (laughs) Um, And let, let me just recap the evidence that we have so far, and then we can delve into what these two studies add. Steroids and sepsis, uh, we have two clinical trials that pretty much have informed practice and guidelines for uh, many years. The first one came out in JAMA 2002, a study out of France in 19 ICUs, and they reported that by giving patients who had relative adrenal insufficiency, which they found using a 
corticotropin uh, stimulation test that in patients who are adrenally insufficient, if you gave them hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams every six hours, and flucocortisone, 50 micrograms daily for seven days, that had a hazard ratio of 0.67, a very significant 28-day mortality benefit uh, versus giving placebo. It was a relatively small trial, about 200 patients, uh, and the mortality was high in that study, 55% versus 65%, 28-day mortality. So there was a lot of buzz, and then the second trial came out, Corticus, <laughs> which had slightly bigger number of patients, but they also used similar criteria, and out of 200 patients who had relative adrenal insufficiency, they found that giving steroids didn't really have any benefit versus placebo, and they actually found a mortality rate that was similar, maybe even a little bit higher for those that got steroids, 39.2% versus 36%. What is the mechanism? You know, why do we give, it just seems counterintuitive that patient comes in, they have an infection, they need all the immune system they can muster, and yet we decided that for the purposes of saving their life, we're going to give them a medication that potentially can be immune suppressing. And then where did this idea of relative adrenal insufficiency come up as well? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think when we think of sepsis, we think of the body ramping up its defense system against an infection and that being a good thing. But we also know that sometimes the response is what actually leads to the most organ damage and the most clinical adverse outcomes. And the infection is fairly rapidly handled with antibiotics. So if you have a hyper-inflammatory response to an initial infectious insult that then perpetuates itself, you can end up with a lot of hyperinflammatory adverse events, including subsequent organ failures and things like that. So the idea behind the Anon trial was to try to target the sickest patients very early. They got them within hours of, of sort of meeting criteria, um, which included having to have been on pressors for a while, and give them steroids to try to tamp down that excess inflammatory response that's causing more harm than good. In contrast, we, do, we are concerned that many patients have a hypoimmune phase to their sepsis, and maybe the steroids could, could harm them. And then in terms of relative adrenal insufficiency, both the idea that people won't be able to mount an adequate stress response to being infected, but also that in the setting of inflammation, you might have decreased receptor sensitivity for both glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids, um, and that therefore you would need more circulating steroid to have the same physiologic response, I think, is one of the things that's really prompted people to think about giving steroids. Both the adrenal system isn't working appropriately, but also you need more in the setting of inflammation to get the same systemic response. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those paired thoughts get rid of this hyperinflammatory counterproductive response and really give people the steroids they need that they can't produce for themselves, this relative adrenal insufficiency. Based on that, Anon made sense. The Anon study made some sense, but the mortality was really high. The mortality benefit was pretty big, um, and so it definitely needed replication, and Corticus, unfortunately, didn't show any benefit. And one really interesting difference between the studies is that in the Anon 2002 paper, they really looked at a difference in response between their responders and their non-responders, meaning that if you were able to respond to a corticotropin stimulation test, then you didn't really benefit at all from the steroids. But if you were a non-responder, you saw the benefit that you mentioned. Interestingly, in the Corticus trial, 
they did the same thing. They did a simulation test in all of their enrollees and then randomized everybody, regardless of response. And what they found is that the response to steroids was totally the same between non-responders and responders Mm. to the stimulation test. And that's why if you ever hear us say on critical care rounds, don't bother sending a court stim, I think a lot of that comes from this study where Mm -hmm. we found that doing that test doesn't really predict how you'll respond to steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea that even someone who, quote unquote, passes a court stim test might not be normal in their adrenal access. Mm -hmm. One thing that this is going to be a bit of foreshadowing, but <laughs> how come Corticus didn't decide to give the flucocortisone if it wanted to be a true replication of the original anon study? That's a great study? question. So their rationale was at the doses of hydrocortisone that we're giving, you get enough mineralocorticoid activity that the flucocort is just excessive. So their their rationale was you get enough mineralocorticoid from the high-dose hydrocortisone that you don't really need to give the flucocort separately. But you're right, that is a big difference between the two studies, as well as how sick the patients were in the Anand study. They were mm-hmm. pretty sick. Their mortality was very high. Yeah. So again, just to repeat this so that our listeners can hold these numbers in their in their mind as we talk about the upcoming studies. So the in Anand study, again, it was a 55% versus 65% mortality at 28 days. And in Corticus, it was only 39% for those who got steroids and 36% for those who didn't at 28 days. Let's talk about the most recent trials that are now published this week. We have Adrenal, which is a international multi-center study, 69 different medical and surgical ICUs. And there is Approaches, which again is a French study led by Dr. (laughs) Anand at 34 centers. What did they show? Yeah, so the adrenal study, um, which included some study personnel from the Corticus trial, so neither are totally unbiased actors, uh, but included a total of 3,800 patients, and they were randomized to either placebo or hydrocortisone. Again, no flucortisone in this study. And the hydrocort was given as a continuous infusion, which is some one difference from prior studies. And the thought was some of the adverse events that you see with steroids, like hyperglycemia, or superinfection might be due to the pulse dosing or bolus dosing of steroids. So they did hydrocort as a continuous infusion. And their primary outcome was all-cause 90-day mortality, and they saw no difference between the groups. Um, They did not separate out responders and non-responders like the prior studies. They just took all comers. The Corticus trial had shown that patients who got steroids had a higher risk of developing new infections or new episodes of shock. That harm from steroids was not seen in this study. So the patients who got steroids had faster resolution of their shock, but no difference in total days of mechanical ventilation, length of stay, or mortality. Mm -hmm. And then how about approaches? Approaches found something very different. So Approaches took about 1,200 patients, and they randomized them to either hydrocort plus flucortisone or placebo. And again, their primary outcome was 90-day all-cause mortality, so similar outcome. And they saw a mortality difference, so 43% in the steroid group and 49% in the placebo group. So once again, demonstrating that in France, at least, you have a benefit to steroids. <laughs> something about the water, maybe. <laughs> um, so I think it's important. It's worthwhile to emphasize the point that the the mortality, which I think is our proxy at the moment for how sick the patient population is, in adrenal we have a population where the average mortality is about twenty eight percent, which is less than that observed in corticus. In approaches, we have a mortality forty three to forty nine percent, which is better for when Dr. Nan did his first study in two thousand two. 
but it's still significantly higher, especially just to put things in context for the listeners. In the more recent sepsis, septic shock trial of uh, looking at early goal-directed therapy, promise, process, and arise, 90-day mortality ranged anywhere between 20 and 30%. So a lot of contemporary studies showing that we've gotten better at managing sepsis, mortality rates are now down, but in this patient population, where the mortality is as high as 40%, 10 po- 10% higher than contemporary studies, we now see a benefit to giving steroids. So maybe some thoughts from you as to why that is and how do we reconcile these two studies? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I think that the very high mortality seen in the Anand 2002 paper is not that surprising when you put it into context of what was happening in critical care. Uh, Manny Rivers' early goal-directed therapy paper had only come out a year before that paper was published. So that was still being, early goal-directed therapy was still being put into practice during the the execution of that original Anand study. But you're right, the mortality remains higher in the approaches study. And I actually feel like adrenal and approaches did a better job of trying to seek out equally sick patients. They both had a requirement that their patients be in refractory septic shock requiring vasopressors. So in the adrenal study, you had to be on vasopressors for at least four hours. In the approaches study, you had to be on for at least six hours. But both selected for the subset of the sickest patients. So I'm not that surprised the mortality was higher than, say, process, arise, or promise. Um, which took patients who were hypotensive but hadn't yet required pressors for a prolonged period of time. Um, But the mortality is still higher in approaches than it is in adrenal, and they still are the only group that's managed to find a benefit to sepsis, and I think, or to steroids and sepsis, excuse me. So I think the real question is, what's different about their patients or what's different about their study protocols? And I think the, the potential differences are their patients are just sicker, that Fludricort has a bigger impact than we thought it did, or that the way that they're otherwise taking care of their patients is different. And that's very hard to get at, but in a multicenter study, that should minimize the chance mm-hmm. that that's what it is. I think most of us don't really believe it's the fludricort. It's hard, you know, from a physiologic standpoint, at high doses of hydrocort, you should be getting some mineralocorticoid activity, and so it's hard to believe that that's really what's driving a mortality benefit, especially because even in the studies that have not shown a benefit, like adrenal and corticus, you do see a hemodynamic benefit to steroids. They come off vasopressors sooner. It's just that that doesn't impact mortality, length of stay, or anything else. Mm -hmm. So you're definitely seeing that the steroids are working at restoring vascular tone or restoring intravascular volume. It's just that they're not otherwise benefiting the patients. If you didn't see that benefit, then you might say, okay, maybe you need the fludricort to really see a benefit to steroids. Mm -hmm. What it really gets to for me is what's different about the patients in the Anand group? Is there something they're identifying, either how sick their patients are or something else about them that's making them more likely to benefit? And one of the things we talk about all the time in critical care is heterogeneity of treatment effect. And if you haven't read about that before, I encourage the listeners to just Google that and Haley Prescott, and there's a great paper about it. Um, But it's the idea that if you can't adequately identify subgroups ahead of time, if there's phenotypes within your study population that are not previously identifiable or haven't been dissected out ahead of time, and you have a very heterogeneous patient population, that some patients will benefit and some patients will be harmed for any intervention, whether it's fluids or steroids or anything else, and that that can really muddy the results. So in adrenal, for example, just because they didn't show a difference between the two groups doesn't mean no one was helped by steroids and it doesn't mean no one was harmed by steroids. It just means those two things balanced each other out. And in approaches, maybe what we're seeing is they've somehow found the patients who are more likely to benefit in a way that's not identified, whether it's by organ failures or how sick they are or something else. And I think that in order to answer the steroid question more definitively, we're going to have to find a way to phenotype out the patients 
who benefit and are harmed by steroids and do a trial that focuses on those groups instead of on all comers with sepsis. You know, we were talking a little before we started recording, but in some areas of medicine, the phenotypes are very clear, right? You have a, a gene mutation and you have a particular type of cancer, or you have a plaque rupture and you have an MI. In critical care, we're stuck with a very messy group of patients who have a lot of different diseases that lead to the same syndrome, whether it's shock, excuse me, shock or ARDS or something else. And I think predictive enrichment, where you try to find unique groups within that and then study those groups for each intervention is probably the way we're going to get cleaner answers. Mm -hmm. And to just throw out a buzzword these days, you know, that's very much, I think, in the paradigm of personalized medicine. Absolutely. Where we're really trying to pick out the people who are the subgroups that benefit from interventions. I think the only unfortunate part of it to me is that it's really hard to get at that in the context of one study. You, you can do so hard. You can do so much subgroup analysis, but those are all secondary, oftentimes not pre-specified, and you just don't know if the signal you're finding is by random chance until you replicate it. That's right. And you have to hope that all of these studies are smart enough to do biobanking of plasma serum and other things so that when we do find biomarkers of a hyperinflammatory sepsis syndrome that reliably predict that phenotype, we can go back and recategorize these patients. And that's a lot of that work has been done in ARDS. So if you look at Carolyn Calfee's end of phenotypes in ARDS, you know, using latent class analysis, she can recategorize patients who've been in clinical trials for ARDS and then look at whether those endophenotypes predict response to an intervention like high versus low PEEP, for example. And I think that's where the, this work needs to go for sepsis and steroids. And mm -hmm. there are people who are doing that work, and it's I'm hoping it will sort of hit prime time soon. Mm -hmm. um, but finding a way to categorize patients in a meaningful physiologic group so that we can better target our therapies and prevent harm and maximize benefit. For myself, you know, with all comers coming to my unit, am I going to use steroids? It's a really tough question. Probably not. You know, I was saying again before we started recording, it used to be part of surviving sepsis guidelines. Use it routinely anymore, and I'm not sure that this one paper is enough to change that practice. Mm -hmm. Will you still think about steroids for some of your sickest patients? Yeah. It's like the Hail Mary. Like, no one dies without a dose of Gent. No one should die without a dose of steroids. We still, I, we still do it, but I'm never sure whether I'm helping or harming. And to be honest, one of the things that was unique about the original Anon paper was how early they got people in sepsis. And there's this paradigm that patients will have a hyperinflammatory or hyperimmune response initially and then become hypoimmune later in their illness. And so if you're on day three and your patient isn't coming off pressors and they're getting worse, how are you balancing benefit versus harm? I don't know. So it's something that we... we go for. It's the Hail Mary pass at the end of the game. And I think it's very hard to know whether we're helping or harming patients when we do that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I do see, you know, when I was training as a resident, oftentimes we do go for steroids when patients are on their third presser yes. and things are not really turning around. But you look at these trials, both adrenal and approaches, they enrolled patients and gave steroids within 24 hours. Yeah, this is not a rescue therapy. This is upfront therapy in these trials. Yeah. So that's very different, I think, than how we often utilize it in practice. Okay. So as always, more research needs to be done. That's the, the, <laughs> always, common, that's always. the common refrain anytime we're talking about studies. But it's very interesting. I think the studies provide more information, but unfortunately, I think they probably reinforce current practice. Yeah, I feel like if you're a steroid lover now, you still will be after these two studies come out. And if you're a steroid skeptic now, you still will be after these two studies come out. And I think 
you know, that's where the authors fall to. I think Anand really believes, and his whole group really believe that they're benefiting patients, and they've had studies that show it again and again. It just hasn't been replicated by other groups, and I think the rest of the world remains a little skeptical. Mm-hmm. So more to come. Yes. Let's just recap briefly what we talked about today. So going back to the idea of fluids, we talked about the difference between colloids and crystalloids and how with colloids that there's been studies done showing that it really doesn't show a significant amount of benefit. And there's the huge question of it could just costs a lot more to give colloids than crystalloid. We did mention that in situations of hemorrhagic shock, probably should be giving people blood, which is what they're losing. But in all other situations, crystalloid is probably just as good. Which crystalloid to give? There's the most recent two studies showing that maybe a little bit of benefit to LR for renal outcomes, which can be important when we're considering this is one of the most commonly given intervention in the medical setting. And certainly, I'll probably be reaching for LR a little bit more frequently than I have in the past. On the topic of steroids and sepsis, we have two more studies that basically just muddles the picture even more. One study, Adreno, showing that it doesn't really benefit patients, probably for all comers and those who are less sick. And then we have approaches which, uh, which found a much sicker population of patients and found that perhaps there is a benefit to giving steroids. I will say that something that we didn't mention earlier is that the relative benefit of giving steroids in this population in approaches was smaller in the very first study that Absolutely. that Dr. Anand did. So uh, a little bit of regression, and I think that probably is also a testament to the fact that we're doing better at treating sepsis. Patients are not dying as frequently. So perhaps the other therapies are mitigating a little bit the benefit that we're seeing, but more to come. Catherine, anything else you'd like to add as a parting word? I think that um, these studies just highlight again and again how hard it is to do critical care research, how hard it is to get a clean answer, how important it is to do big studies, and how important it is to know who you're studying. And I think that you know, as a critical care practitioner, it's very tempting whenever a new study comes out to completely change your practice one way or another. I think many of us have been burned by that. And so we're trying to take a more cautious approach and look at what the risk is of adopting a new intervention. So if you're choosing LR over normal saline, that seems pretty low risk for most patients, more likely to adopt that. Whereas for steroids, potentially a higher risk intervention for some patients, I think some healthy skepticism and looking forward to better defined study populations so we can get cleaner answers. But for those of us who love critical care, this is why we love it in some ways, because it's not cookie cutter. You can't just say, you know, plaque rupture, aspirin, gene mutation, chemotherapy, not to diminish all of the hard work that's gone into those discoveries. But I think in critical care, we just don't have as clean an answer. Yeah. I think it leaves a lot more room for good research to be done. Absolutely. One other thing I will say is that when you're a busy resident and maybe all you have time is glance at the abstract, it's helpful to take that one step further and glance through the exclusion, exclusion criteria, Mm -hmm. inclusion, and exclusion criteria, and glance down at table one just to get a sense of who are the patients that I'm reading about because you can find any population and make a study show a benefit and whether or not that's relevant or applicable to your practice, that's really up for debate. Absolutely. So important to be a critical reader of the literature, I think, at every every level of training, even when you're short on time. Thank you so much for coming and joining us for this podcast. I really appreciate all the insights you give, you've given us um, and hope our listeners found it very helpful as well. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guides on sepsis and resuscitation fluids in the rotation prep section on critical care for more information at resident360.nejm.org. I want to give special thanks to our expert today, Dr. Catherine Hibbert. Our production team here at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Sokol Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Colley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemmenbeck. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. Please tell us what you think by emailing us at residence360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter where our handle is at nejmres360. Once again, I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine, and we'll see you next time.